Hi, and thanks for tuning in. My name's Andy Jordan, and this is Pit Talk. Now, the idea behind Pit Talk is to have a nice, cosy chat with a lovely bunch of people who live and breathe music. You'll hear top musicians, producers, sound men, musical directors, but the likelihood is that you won't have heard of many or maybe any of them. Because these are the people who really make the music business breathe and move. They're the people who put the music behind the superstars who we all know all about. They're the people who give you the music of a West End show or engineer the sound which comes out of your speakers. They're the people who teach, create and craft the music that we all love. And without these people, there would be no music business. Now, I think we have a lot to learn from these dedicated professionals, and so I'll bring them to you. So that's my overture, and here's Act One. And Act One brings to your ears the musical life and experiences of a good friend of mine, Mr. Mark Elvin. He's a top West End musician, a writer, a teacher, and an all-round good egg. So ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me for episode one of Pit Talk. Mark Elvin, you are a good friend of mine. Indeed, have been for a long time. A long time, but you're a bass player. (laughs) Okay. Yes, you're a bass player. Guilty as charged. Yes. You're a writer. Yes. You're an arranger. Yes. Uh, You're a tuba player. Yes. Good. Increasingly so. Yeah, I know. And I've seen a book, which is the syllabus book for tuba exams, I believe, uh, for, is it Trinity? Trinity. Trinity. And on the front of this book, there are all the names of the composers within the book whose pieces are in there. Yeah. And that list of names is people like Vaughan Williams, I think. Mozart, I think, Grieg. Bernstein. Bernstein, uh, Haydn. And um, Elvin. Yes. (laughs) So your name is on that list with all those composers on the front of that book. It's pretty cool, though, isn't it? It is pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. Am I wrong to get that printed out and have it framed? No, I would have it on my wall. Most okay. definitely. I think okay. you should do that. That's what I'll do then. And I, I think that was a good place to start as well, because I think that's that's a fantastic credit. But I think it's quite weird, given that the majority of your career has been as a bass player, and yet that massive credit comes as you being a person who plays and writes music for tuba. Yeah, OK, so I wouldn't class myself as a bass player. I think I decided fairly early on that I would prefer to class myself as a musician. Okay. One of the things I do being play electric bass, yeah. a bit of double bass, and all the other things you mentioned as well. I'm not just a bass player, and thank goodness I'm not, because <laughs> when my bass playing career sort of faltered a little bit, I had other things to um, engage myself with. Yeah, that... That is something that I was, I'm going to raise uh, at some point because my idea for Pit Talk is that this is music from the horse's mouth. In other words, the people I want to talk to are people like yourself who've been there, seen it and done it. 
you've been part of West End bands. You've been part of, of big bands playing for festivals, for major artists. But, and with respect, nobody really knows who Mark Elvin is, do Good. you? And that's my point. <laughs> well, you know, but that's my point. In other words, I think there's an awful lot of people out there. In fact, the majority, the, the, the big block of the industry, which actually makes the industry move and is the beating heart of the industry... And yet nobody knows who they are. So where does it all start for you? Where, where you hail from and, and what was the first hook, music hook, if you'll excuse the pun? There'll be probably be loads of those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Banter. Hey. Yeah, that's what it is. Banter. Uh, so my parents um, were and are retired now Salvation Army officers. Right. So I grew up in that environment and of course the Salvation Army is a very musical yeah. organisation mm. um, and then from a very early age and I have vague remembrances of this my dad I think he must have realised I was quite uh, quite a good ear Yeah. so he used to sit me down by the piano and he would say right this note is the note C we play the note and then he'd play another note and get me to figure out what the other note was so it's kind of like a little ear test yeah. but when I was three or four years old so straight away I was kind of drawn into the way that music works the way that sounds happen together and the relationship between sounds and how when you put them all together they make a pleasing kind of sound and then of course being in, in that kind of uh, church environment at the age of six I was given a cornet yeah um, and you joined the junior band, and and I think I took to it pretty quick. Took the brass first. Brass was first, yeah. And I continued to improve. Um, I think I must. There must be some sort of competitive streak in me because I always wanted to be better than the kid who sat next to me. So I practiced a bit harder, you yeah, know. Fair and, enough. Uh, which I don't think is a is necessarily a, a bad thing. No, and and presumably you. Uh, I think I, I was the same as well. My parents will, will attest to this. Um, and I think it's key as well for all young kids. I never had to be asked to practice when, no. I, when I was five no, and six. I loved it. Yeah, me too. Loved yeah. it. Absolutely loved it. Mm. And I think from a very early age, I didn't think, oh, this is what I want to do for a job. But this is what I want to do more than anything else. Yeah. You know, I, I like to play football and I like to play cricket. But actually what I really liked to do was the music thing. Mm. And then um, at the age of 13, we were in Portsmouth and a guy at the church there said, look, I've got this sort of rock and roll band. Do you want to have a go? Because he knew I could read music pretty well. Do you want to have a go at playing the bass guitar? And I had a guitar knocking around at home and I think I'd always picked out the bass lines on, on the guitar. So it seemed like, a, oh yeah, I'd be quite fancy having a go at that. So it was brass and it was bass guitar. And I mean, it was the, the an awful instrument. But I learned a lot and we played sort of the current pop tunes and a few from the 60s, Beatles tunes and, and stuff like that. And so I got some bass chops uh, together and that carried on for about... Well, probably until I was about 18. And then I got um, I got a job with the DHSS in London. I was still playing there. And one of the guys there was a fellow called Ivor Twydell, who was the drummer with a band called After the Fire. Right. Who was sort of a Christian rock thing. And I started doing some gigs with him, professional gigs. Um, just sort of coffee bars and wine bars and, 
and so started to sort of get a taste for actually you can earn some money doing this but I wanted to study music at a proper place now by this time I'd given up on playing the trumpet for a while I was an out and out rock and roller and that was what I wanted to do you know but in those days the music conservatoires viewed rock and roll and bass guitar as the work of the devil you know as a dark art so I revived my trumpet uh, got it out of the box again and got some chops together on the on, on the trumpet and, and attended London College of Music and because I was now doing trumpet the bass guitar got put away I was doing the old little session and stuff like that on it but basically got put away um, and I focused on trumpet and I did composition and I did conducting and I had piano lessons and all the other sort of academic music lessons, the history and the, the harmony and all the skills that you, you do when you're at those yeah. uh, kind of colleges, you know. And I had a trumpet teacher called uh, Willie Lang, who was the principal trumpet with the LSO uh, and was a truly magnificent and funny and brilliant educator as well as being a, a brilliant musician. And he taught me music rather than just trumpet, which was great. So things about phrasing and balance and listening to what everyone else is doing and yeah. to make it a musical thing rather than just a technical and he's really used to smoke in the lessons and the smoke would come out the end of his bell when he was <laughs> when he was playing his trumpet you know it was, it was quite it was those in the days of course you could smoke him yeah that was good and then after music I got my degree after music college I did a job for a few months looking after professional musicians' diaries right. in Dorking. And then I got a job as the concert manager at the London College where I'd studied, and I did that for four years, three or four years, but really got fed up with setting up for everyone else to play and not being able to play um, I understand that. myself. Yeah. The last year at the London College, or possibly the last two years, we I was playing trumpet in a little jazz quartet which we made up with the staff, but one day the bass player didn't turn up. And so I said, well, look, I can plonk out some stuff on double bass. And was instantly hooked back onto the yeah. the bass thing. And so the trumpet went back in the case, no, never to see the light of day again. And I had now changed again to becoming a bass player. Yeah, Bought an electric bass again, a half-decent one, and started doing a little bit of work professionally again with people that I knew. So that was the road into... So that was the start of the profession the, yeah. as an electric bass player. So, looking back now over over that time when you were when you were becoming a musician, whether I mean it's for me, I kind of try and look back, and I can remember when I was fifteen, I joined my first band, and I wanted to play the fastest Genesis type keyboard solos and get as many notes in as I possibly could, and it was only much later. Um, and a certain Mark Elvin might have been when we worked on Bliss, if you remember, might oh, even have been one of the you know the, the people who really started to slow me down, and and then it, it does fall into place wherein you think for those fifty notes that I've just played, I could have played five. Hmm. So were you conscious of that when you were actually learning, or did it just all slowly start to fall in place? It's a it's it's a part of being a musician, isn't it? So when did that fall into place, or? This point where we've got to in your life now, where you're just about to move on and just and become a, a a top pro bass player, were you still 
way back in that learning curve or do you think going through college that's where it was starting to fall into place as a musician that's a really good question you never stop learning no. that learning curve doesn't actually that's stop that's a really good answer you don't do it you? doesn't no. stop so when I by default became a bass player again because this chap didn't turn up I was that the enthusiasm and the energy and the adrenaline that I put into bass playing was that I'll play 50 notes here because I don't just want to play five mm. thing. But what you do learn, um, you get a few slap downs along the way from older, wiser people. Yeah. And that certainly happened to me in the early years that I was starting to earn a living as a bass player. You get told to shut up and you hear the phrase less is more and you think, well, that's not applicable to me necessarily <laughs> because look, look what I've just learned. I've learned this fantastic new lick and I want to throw it in as often as I possibly can. Yeah. And it's only when a few people have said to you, well, actually, that's completely not necessary to do that. That learning curve sort of starts to kick in. And then you hear players, on, it's probably happened for you as well, Andy, you hear piano players who will only play five notes instead of 50. Mm. And you'll go, that's so cool. And for me as a bass player, electric bass player, is a guy called Pino Palladino, fantastic bass player, who, amongst other things, um, worked with Paul Young. And it was an album he did with Alita Adams and a song called Get Here, yeah, which we that. all know quite well. Yeah, of course. Um, where it's really, really sparse bass playing, but hugely effective. And that was an Im Im immense learning curve for me, listening to players like that who would just play one note and have the same effect as 50 notes. That's about one note every two bars in that piece, isn't it, Phil? And it's absolutely genius bass playing. Agreed. Agreed. And it's not about bass playing and technique or, no. or fast notes. It's about music. Yeah. And that took me back to what Willie Lang was teaching me as you know when I was learning the trumpet with him. Everything he said then at music college fell into place yeah and then suddenly the light bulb went off about being a musician and being playing what's relevant for the situ the playing situation yeah that you're in it is and i continue to learn you know i don't play much bass these days because i've had a few tendon issues and mm -hmm. stuff which is sort of why my career as a electric bass player has kind of stuttered a little bit mm. Um, so i just do a little bit of work now on electric bass more work on tuba which you mentioned earlier but even there, it's that's a learning curve. Yeah. And it's a learning curve which I'm taking now into the stuff I'm writing, the original material I'm writing, which is serious, hopefully, concert-type music. And I, I don't think you ever stop learning as a musician because there's always something else to learn. Yeah. So then bass guitar takes over, um, and I'm just going to read out theatre credits. Here we go. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Fame... Cats, Grease, Blood Brothers, Footloose, Saturday Night Fever, Mamma Mia, Hairspray, Dancing in the Streets, Billy Elliot, Thriller, Bodyguard, Memphis, High School Music, uh, Joseph, and I've missed a few out there as well. That's pretty cool. That's a nice list of shows, isn't it? It is. It's an interesting thing, theatre work. I mean, I got into it because someone said, oh, the way you get into it is you go and start deputising yeah. for people. You become a dep, as they call mm. it. And... Um, a lovely fellow called Doug Henning, who was the bass player on Cats, uh, I'd rang him up, I managed to get his number, and he said, yeah, come and sit in, come and see what goes on. Mm. 
And we hit it off straight away and I was asking intelligent, relevant questions, not just to what bass do you use or, you know, what, what's your amplifier or what strings yeah. do you use, but what's that phrase that the trumpets are playing there? What, what was it that the conductor did at this point? So they were kind of more relevant to being a theatre musician questions than just being a bass nerd. Yeah. And um, he said, well, look, I've got plenty of deputies, but you're welcome to come and sit in at any time. And then he rang me up about a month later and said, look, one of my deputies has moved on. Do you fancy having a go? Which was great. I mean, yeah. golden opportunity. And that really started, was the, the foot in, my shoe in to mm. the, uh, the West End and the theatre sort of stuff. Again, it goes back to what I was saying before. People got theatre and they can open the programme and they can see the list of names there. Can't they? You know, in the band is Mark mm. Elvin on bass, etc., etc., um, the programme might go in the drawer when they get home. They will listen to an, a, an exceptional performance by a bunch of exceptional musicians. And yet, probably if they were asked to name any of them the next day, they wouldn't have, just clearly wouldn't have a clue. That's a big frustration, really, for me, from the outside. But it's something that a lot of people don't understand. And I think it's something that, for me, young, young musicians coming through have to get a handle on. Um, because these are some of the best musicians in the country and nobody knows who they are. But without them, the theatre shows won't stand up. It's the, quite often a lot of the West End musicians, they're also the top session guys around, and so they'll be playing on the albums that you listen to and now you download and all the rest of it. And again, you haven't got a clue who they are. Mm. But what's the state of mind in terms of, you know, you're anonymous musicians? Well, for me personally, I don't have a problem with that because I'm quite a shy bloke. Yeah. Um, and I don't like being in the limelight. Um, so sitting under the stage at a theatre, being anonymous, yeah. as you put it, suits me down to the ground. Yeah. I've done work where I've been on stage. I've been on stage with you, Andy. Mm. Um, uh, Guildford Festival comes to mind for one and, mm. and a couple of other uh, places as well. I was on stage with the Drifters for six years. Yeah. Um, and although I'm one of the hired hands stood at the back, you still are a little bit more in the limelight. Right. Um, and is that something you have to deal with, given that... You I, know, have to, I have more of a problem dealing with being in the limelight than right. being in a hole underneath, underneath the stage. It's funny, because I, I think... You know, you're you're a mate. I can tell you this anyway. But I think you're you're cool when you're on stage. You you know, you look cool. In your head, are you thinking, I shouldn't have worn this shirt? Yes. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Uh, you it know, is. It's, it's just a strange thing, and it, you know, sunglasses and a hat, big hat to yeah. hide underneath, yeah. suit me down to the ground. Yeah. Well, um, I, I can tell you, you don't have to worry about your image when you're on stage, Mark, because you do generally look cool. Probably because you don't try and do any dance moves, which I think would be a mistake. Um, you know. yeah. For those listening in black and white, Mark's quite a, a tall chap and quite a well-built chap. And I don't think... Um, I wouldn't want to see you on stage in Thriller, let's put it that way. No. No. <laughs> I don't think the stage would stand it, but anyway. <laughs> now, the other thing is as well, is if you can get a seat, your own seat in the West End, mm. then there is good money to be made, isn't there? There is good money to be made. Yeah. But I think the first thing to say is that the guys who get the regular chairs in the West End mm. are really the top yeah. players. They're mm. the cream of the cream. Yeah. 
and they've grafted. They've really put in the work. And if you if you were to get someone who really grafted uh, their way up the financial system or the banking system or uh, the legal system for the same amount of time, they'd actually probably be on more money than these guys, extremely talented musicians who are in yeah. the West End. Yeah. The other thing to take into account is that although most people think, oh, what a glamorous job to do, mm. the mm. nature of a musician is as a creative being. Yeah. Okay? So to actually be made, not made, but expected to do uncreative things, mm. even with the... You know the the eye contact and and the banter that goes on in the pit. Yeah. You don't have any facility of being creative yeah. as a musician when you're playing a theatre show. You know, Andy. You you write music. I write music. That's probably the ultimate form of being creative. Yeah. As a musician, playing on your albums again. There's a lot of freedom because you're you're a great guy to work with you value what we have to contribute as musicians individually. Massively, yeah. So you give us that free reign Mm. to put stuff in that we think will will enhance your songs. And that, that, again, it's a sort of a type of creativity that, as a musician, you're you're given reign to do, which you're not given reign to do in a theatre thing. And it's understandable because... For the people on the stage, they need to have the foundation, musical foundation that they're that they're familiar with and they know in order to be able to do their job on the stage. If the bass player suddenly goes off on a flurry of fifty notes yeah. unexpectedly, it's very distracting for the people on the stage. It's a little bit disrespectful for the people who've done the written the music and the orchestration because yeah. you haven't sort of said to them, "Do you mind if I do this?" Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit. Again, it's kind of look at me, you yeah, know, absolutely stealing the spotlight. Look at this lick that I've learned this week. Yeah. I'm going to try and shoehorn it in. And theatre is not about that. No. Orchestral musicians have the same thing, probably to a greater extent than the theatre musicians, in as much as they have to play exactly what's on the on the music mm. with all the dynamics and the inflections and everything. That's what Chopin said. That's right, but they don't play the same piece eight times a week. No, true enough. They have a bigger, wider variety of mm. repertoire. Yeah. So it makes their job far more interesting. And I guess different conductors will look at different pieces, do symphonies, concertos as a whole, and decide they're going to put a, a different brush on it. Yeah. And so that there is freedom there, isn't there? I remember, well, my way of writing is, and you remember this one, I've probably sent you my first ever demos, all done on a synth with horrible synth bass even worse synth guitars um and you know the piano part would stand up in the vocals i that's what i want but i'd send you these with a rough chord chart mm. and i think there were even times when you rang me up about an hour later and said andy you can't do that on a bass guitar <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry mark well can you you know that's the for me that was the best way to do it yeah. in other words this is what i think this is what i think i want my bass to sound like yeah but of course, I don't play bass. I, I haven't, you know, I've got a concept of, of the, the, the notes, the ranges, all the rest of it. But I don't play. It's such a, it feels such an alien concept to me. So then there's a trust thing in that with you, I want you then to tell me 
actually how the bass should sit in this piece and the drummer to say look Andy this needs to hold back this needs to come forward and the guitarist well you know I, I like to feature guitarists and so I want I want a solo to go uh, in the right place but the guitarist then is going to come back to me and say it's not there Andy and we need to you know for me that is the best way which will lead on to what we're going to talk about next the number one the trust and that telepathy thing that we mentioned earlier because it's a massive thing isn't it and it, it comes it with the writing, the creation of a song, and then also on the public performance of it as well. I would say that although you say, oh, I don't know the way, you know, whether a bass can do that or not, or whether a guitarist can do that or a drummer can do that or not, that's not, that's kind of not your job. Your job yeah, is, is to have a concept of a piece of music. Yeah. The bass is just a tool that makes the low sounds. Yeah. The drums is just a tool that does a little bit of rhythmic stuff behind. Okay, but the act- your your job as the writer and the co- is the concept of the music. You in your head, although you sent me a demo which you say was rubbish. Your demos were never rubbish, Andy. Um, uh, you know, but it, you this is gives us a clue as to what it is that you're hearing for your piece of music. Yeah. We then try and fulfil that. Yeah as best we can the way that you hear it, but also from our own experiences, suggest other things as well. Being careful not to step over the line of upsetting all the planning that you've done over the period of time. Mm. Drummers and bass players, that that level of telepathy is massive, isn't it? Mm. And that's the, the crucial relationship. And in actual fact, there is not a band around that, that works mm. if they're bass player and they're drummer doesn't work together but going all the way back to you at college you can't teach that can you no no drums and bass it's the foundation of commercial music Mm. and jazz to a certain extent and latin music the drummer and the bass player have got to be on the same wavelength now there's one show that i was involved with where when we were in the rehearsal stage, it was evident that where I naturally placed notes was different from where the guitarist was playing, placing his notes and the drummer was placing his notes. And the great thing about friendship and trusting people is that you can say to these people, like, we're not quite together on this, fellas. You know, I'm pushing it forward and you're sitting right back on it and we need to kind of meet in the middle. And, and so we resolve that issue over a cup of coffee and and, and everything was kind of sorted out, which is great. The key element is using the very expensive flaps on the side of your head. (laughs) Right. In other words, you need to be listening. And the whole thing about, particularly with commercial music and rock bands and jazz bands and stuff like that, it's not just about being able to play the notes, it's about listening to what's happening. And the drummers I've worked and like you say, there's been some great drummers, Aki Yates being one, Darren Ashford, Gordy Marshall, Elliot Henshaw, um, to, to name a few, and many others as well. Yeah. The thing about these guys is that they all listen yeah. to what's going on, and particularly the listening between the bass and the drums is the key thing. Because yeah. then you can make that solid foundation, if you want to think of the analogy of a building... The It'll building doesn't up. fall down. Exactly that. Okay, and it's it's to do with using your ears. One of the projects I've got, and one of the things I'm disappointed with music education these days, is that ear training 
and the ability to listen and yeah. engage the ears with the brain yeah. is sadly lacking these days in education. One of one of my projects is to write a course and a, a book um, to to help youngsters with getting their ears going again. Great. Well, good because I think, uh, and this is a whole different conversation, a whole different yeah. podcast. We'll, we'll Music not- in education is shambolic at the moment and certainly needs addressing, doesn't it? But I think you know we'll not go too deeply into no. that. But to bring it back round to what we're talking about is yeah the the drums and the bass have got to be listening out for each other while being aware of the framework of time that the piece of music sits on top of and there have been certain drummers I've worked really had the privilege to work with over the years um who are so good at that listening thing that it makes the job of being a bass player so easy because you know that they're going to move with you straight away when you move and going back to the learning curve this is one of the skills that I wanted to learn and continue to want to learn either as a bass player or more just as a musician is being aware of what other musicians are doing and moving with them so that everybody's job is made so much easier absolutely so the next thing really is um, again for, for all those wannabes and upcomings who might or might not hopefully find this somewhere on the uh, interweb. You started off on a trumpet or a cornet. You end up as a West End bass player. You double on double bass. You're now playing and writing music for tuba. Um, and yeah, you've got the patience, I know, because you teach theory and you teach oral tests. And I, I can't do that. I, I don't. It bores the life out of me. But, you know, I know the way your mind works. And I think what you've just said explains an awful lot of the reasons why you do it. Because it's Mm. so important for people on stage to be able to listen, to hear those intervals. Mm. Um, I totally agree with you. I just don't have the patience to teach that to anybody else. But you do. The point being for uh, young musicians listening is, is that what is clear is that you haven't just said, I'm Mark Elvin, bass player. What you've done is... You are, you've adapted over the years your writing and your arrangement and your tuba or your cornet have been in and out of the box and now the tuba's out of the box and the bass is in the corner a little mm. bit more. Um, I think the moral of that story is, is, and do you agree, that it is so important for musicians not to just put themselves in a box. They've got to have a plan B. They've got to be able to not just think... I'm John Smith, I'm the best guitarist in the world and that's all I'm going to do because I'm the best guitarist in the world. Because it's a harsh reality out there. John Smith might well turn out to be the best guitarist in the world but we know and a lot of excellent musicians in this country who are skint mm. and struggling mm. and nobody knows who they are but no. we know that they are superlative musicians. That's the reality of the music business. I think it's dangerous, especially these days, um, for any young musician or any old musician uh, like us Andy to say this is what I do and that's it Hmm. it's dangerous for me to say I'm Mark Elvin I'm a bass player it's far more fulfilling certainly for me to say I'm Mark Elvin I'm a musician yeah and there's a whole bunch of stuff that I do it doesn't make me a jack of all trades and master of none because we've talked about learning curve it never stops as a musician no and you always strive to improve yourself if you've got a competitive edge there's always somebody who's better than you and if that drives you on and motivates you to become better yourself then that's a good thing yeah what happened to me was when I started having tendon problems with my arm 
I realised it was going to be increasingly difficult for me just to work as a bass player in West End shows. Yeah. Um, so after a few days of woe is me and all that kind of stuff, I actually sat down and thought, well, what else can I do as a musician? And as soon as I had that thought, I suddenly realised actually, because I'd always wanted to learn, there was an awful lot more that I could do as a musician. So the tuba came out, it'd been out for a while anyway, but okay, if I want to play and perform, maybe tuba might be a better option these days because, you know, the damage to tendons and all that kind of stuff mm. from electric bass playing. But I can also write music, I can also conduct, I can also teach. I'm devising this ear training course as well. So I can think about things like that. I can write for orchestras, I can write for brass ensembles. Uh, which I've done. I've written a tuba studies book, which you met, very kindly mentioned earlier, which is in the Trinity syllabus, which is out now. Here's a plug. So Other tuba composers are, of course, available. Yes, of course. <clears throat> so it's a case of not limiting myself to, like you say, putting myself in one box. The other thing I would say to all young musicians who are learning is learn everything. Yeah. If you go to music college as a, an electric guitar player, for example, or a trombone player, join a choir as well. Mm. Join the conducting class. Um, learn to do orchestrations for string quartets. Do everything. Join the ancient music group. You know, um, Because the more information and knowledge and tools that you have in your tool bag, the more employable you are as a musician and the more influences you've got to be creative yeah you know the way music works is it's not just it doesn't just sit still we take something from over there and we add it to something over there and we come this kind of fusion and we get a new form of music and then that then gets combined with something from over there and another genre is created and that way by spreading our horizons wide we've got lots of influences that we can stick together to create new stuff otherwise we'd still be singing Gregorian chant yeah or pop music would still be rock and roll in the 1950s but what happens is I almost wish you know I wish that well it yeah but but then that also kills all the creativity doesn't it it's got to change hasn't it I mean and, and all it's, through it's the a ages. craft it's yeah. an art form and like any other art form poetry prose, visual art, carpentry, sculpture, mm. things develop. Yeah, it has to and, evolve. And, and that's the beauty of, of art and, and craft, which is what music is. You've got to move forward all the time, but to do that, you have to continue to learn all the time. So, as we cunningly wrap up, some quick-fire questions. Your favourite show that you worked on? Well, I do have... A soft spot for cats. I was only a deputy, but it was the first one I did. And actually, it was quite a tough one to go in um, straight off. The two that I was most strongly linked with were Priscilla, which was great. We had a great laugh. It must have been a laugh. It was a great laugh with really great guys and fame. And I still got great friendships from from those days in fame, which was the early 2000s. Mm. Um, What's your next gig? Oh, crumbs. 
next gig. Have you got a speakeasy one coming up that I've seen you ban- bouncing around on Facebook? Because that, yes, now that's uh, an interesting project, isn't it? The yeah, speakeasy band. Yeah. So we've got a one speakeasy gig at the moment in June this year um, at the Cookfield Festival. Um, before then, I've got some recording sessions to do and the Hurtwood concert, mm-hmm. which we, we've both done in the past, uh, sure. Andy, and hold great fondness of in yeah. some ways. Um, I've got that coming up. I'm spending a lot of time um, practicing my tuba, and I'm spending a lot of time trying to get this um, ear training course together. The intention with that is to get all instrumental teachers and all classroom teachers to buy the book. They're basically two or three minute ear training exercises for the students to do. They don't take up very much time in the lesson, which I think has always been the problem over recent years. How much time have people got to spend in the classroom doing ear training? Which doesn't seem to be an awful lot. But these are really short exercises which the students can then take away Mm. and practice before they come back to the next lesson. And unbeknown to them, all the time they're practicing them, their ears are getting better. They're recognizing intervals, they're recognizing more complicated musical things through their ears and engaging the brain. And the theory ties in with that as well. I mean, the great thing, one of the reasons I'm interested in theory is because of what I'm hearing gives me a certain curiosity about, well, what is it I'm hearing there? And why? And why does that work? Yeah. Uh, Why is it that I like that chord sequence? Or why is it that I don't like that chord sequence? Uh, What has the composer done here to to make me feel the way I'm feeling when I listen to this piece of music? Which could be different from one day to the next. It could. Because quite literally, the way that you, you feel... If you've had a bad day, we were talking about your arguments with a certain communications com- company earlier, weren't we? Now, if you've had a bad day and you have to go and sit in a pit this afternoon, you're going to play differently, aren't you, to yesterday when everything's rosy and you've, you know, you've just won £20 on a lottery ticket. It will somehow come out in your performance. Yeah. And it, it, is, a, it is almost a tangible, even though the, what I'm saying is intangible, but when it comes out of the speaker, um, some music, you know, it, it can be affected by things like that. And it will affect what comes out the front. It will. Um, as will um, working with a different drummer. Yeah. As will having a different audience um, to from one night to the next. Yeah. If the audience reacts differently, you're going to play uh, differently as well. So, yeah, of course. You know, there's lots of... There's lots of variables on a day-to-day basis that can affect the way that a piece of music sounds. Um, final question then, um, and it, it, this is probably way deep, too deep for a final question, but you're pricey on the state of the music business. Do you think we're in a, it's in a good place now? We can lean into the education thing as well because I know that you know you are. It's great you're actively trying to come up with something that will reintroduce this into a, a music classroom. Even if rather if we can't get a music lesson in every school, which sadly that is the case now in, in some places, but maybe your two or three minute exercise mm-hmm. might just be something that actually just opens up kids' ears. But your answer, you know. In a, your short answer to that state of the music industry in this country um, not great there's too many distractions if you throw back 50, 60, 70 years 
people were more actively involved with music than they are now. Yeah. And a lot of the things that distract young people are things that give instant gratification. You know, you, you play your, your computer game, you, you've learned to drive around the Nürburgring, but actually it's not the same as sitting in a car no. and driving around the Nürburgring. And so because of that, I think the level of perseverance that people have these days to pursue an activity like music over a long period of time, going back to the learning curve, is not there now. Yeah. And because of that, because people don't... I mean, people buy a, a saxophone and they go, oh, yeah, I'm going to play the saxophone. And after two weeks, because they're not David Sanborn or Charlie Parker or, or, or any of the great sax players, they give up. Yeah. Whereas what they don't realise is it takes a long period of time. Mm. So, Which, as we've discussed, never stops. And it never stops. And why is that the root of that? I'm not really sure, Andy, to be perfectly honest with you. Is it music education? Is it society today? I mean, standards of music just don't seem to be as high these days as they were when we were kids. For example, you think of some of the melodies that the Beatles came up with and, mm. and various other great musical artists when we were kids. They're not there now. No. And the Beatles had to sing in tune because they didn't have auto-tune. Now people don't need to sing in tune. Yeah. And you can hear it when you hear recordings on the radio. you know. And when they have live people singing on the radio, I just sort of think, goodness sake, this is just dreadful. Yeah, agreed. You know, and so te technology and production techniques and stuff can really polish a turd. Yeah. Whereas in our day, when we were kids and when we were learning, and as I, you know, I re-emphasise we continue to learn you're refining those things that mm. now technology has taken the place of totally agree uh, which so having said that there are a few little shining lights you know uh, that pop up from time to time the other interesting thing Andy that kind of comes into this is that as you get older and let's face it you and I are getting older um, matey but it's true you're taste and appreciation and understanding of music changes and I find now that I can't listen to contemporary music certainly not the, the, the modern stuff there's no radio no, no one in my house I don't know about you I, I'm not hearing anything new no um, so I've actually travelled back in time and the, the older I get the more and I know I used to criticise old people for this or you know you just listen to classical music and Mozart and Bach and, and all that kind of stuff. But actually, a lot of the contemporary classical music now is really good. I mean, some time ago I introduced you, I think, to Pavel Lukaszewski. He did, yeah. The, who writes fantastic choral music. Mm. And again, it ties into theory and hearing stuff and wondering what's going on and how's he done that. And, yeah. And being in awe of the musicians who perform his pieces, mm. you know, um, which are very difficult to do. But they're really, really great pieces of music. So in that respect, there's, there, there are great move forwards and great developments and, and imp improvements in quality, um, but not in mainstream commercial stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do, and also sadly, with the amount of people that take up instruments and stick with it. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of it's to do with education 
Yeah. And getting young people's expectations to be slightly altered so that they realise it's a long-term thing rather than an instant level of success. I think that's the, that's the difficulty, to my mind, anyway. Well, Mr Mark Elvin, um, what I can say is, is that you've, over the 20-odd years I think we've been making music together, you've certainly been an inspiration for me because, if nothing else, you've taught me how to put a really good... how to arrange a bass line into my songs and, you know, we've had some great live gigs. So, personally, you've been an inspiration. I hope that if one kid finds this on the interweb um, and hears your story um, and I hope if one kid can take inspiration from that and get on their own learning curve which as we now know will just keep moving until the heart stops and you you get put in a box um, then I think it'll be worthwhile equally of course like I said hats off to you because you are trying to push music and the theory of music and the listening experience of music backing to education that needs championing and you should be congratulated for that I think Mr Elvin Um, we try we absolutely do try Mark Elvin thank you very much bless you mate so there you have it thanks for listening to episode one of Pit Talk I hope you've been entertained and maybe you've been inspired And there's plenty more to come. So keep your eyes and your ears peeled for episode two. And if you feel so inclined, please leave me a comment so that I can work with your feedback. Now, perchance that you want to hear some of my music, featuring, of course, a certain Mark Elvin on bass, or find out about some of the weird and wonderful things I get up to, please check out andyjordan.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll tune in again for the next episode of Pit Talk.